Isaiah 44, starting at verse 6. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure does not profit. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a God and casts a metal image for no profit? Look, all its worshippers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans, and they will assemble and stand, and they will be startled and put to shame. The ironworker labours over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers, works it with his strong arm. Also he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human likeness, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down the cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. He also kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in the fire and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He says to it, Save me, for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. No one reflects. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. I will make something detestable with the rest of it, and I will bow down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself, or say, Isn't there a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. Israel, you will never be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Rejoice, heavens, for the Lord has acted. Shout, depths of the earth. Break out into singing mountains, forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorifies himself through Israel. second reading comes from Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34, and you can find that on page 1022 of the Church Bibles. It's Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about the new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenian and the foreign and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, men, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live, so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that, he is, that the divine nature uh, is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from, the, from their presence. However, some of the men joined him and believed, and believed among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Hello. Hi there. My name is Dan. I haven't been at church in the morning for quite a while, so if I haven't met you before, I'm sorry. But it's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm usually at the evening services. We are, of course, back in Acts. We've had six weeks away from Acts. We've got six weeks now in Acts, and then we'll be finished. Um, can I pray again as we come to God's word? Please pray with me. God, we thank you uh, so much that you give us uh, the truth of your word, uh, the truth in your son. We pray, please, this evening, that, this morning, that you will help us uh, see that truth. We pray, please, you give us insight about ourselves and about the world around us and about you, most importantly. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there I am, the Apostle Paul, standing before this council of philosophers, togas everywhere, as you can imagine. They're wealthy guys as well, wealthy philosophers. They're the only ones who can, you know, hang around and just talk about ideas all the time. And they're powerful guys, the ones whose ideas filter down and affect everyone and everything. It's a bit of a nervy situation, me standing before these guys. Have you been in that situation yourself? Your intellectual colleague says, well, what is it you believe about Jesus again? Maybe it's someone a bit more powerful who is this, the manager, the CEO. What do you believe about Jesus? How do you feel? Here's another question. Do you talk about the resurrection? 
But it's a bit worse for me. You see, these guys, these philosophers don't want to give me a fair hearing. They already think I'm an idiot. They called me a a, a pseudo-intellectual. They just like talking about the latest ideas, and it happens to be me at the moment. It's a bit of a nervy situation. You know, you're talking to the CEO or the manager, and they say to you, what's this nonsense you believe about Jesus? But it gets a bit worse. I'm standing here, the Areopagus. Actually, I think we might have a picture of the Areopagus. Here we go. It's that stone in the foreground. I'm standing there, and they're not just a bunch of guys talking about ideas. They're actually kind of, they're making political decisions, legal decisions. What they charged me with was being a preacher of foreign deities. There was this guy not not too uh, long ago called Socrates. You might have heard of him. That's the same thing he was charged of. He ended up dead. So it's not a game. You're standing before the CEO or the manager, whoever it is, and they say, what's this Jesus nonsense you believe? We might have to uh, renegotiate your employment arrangements. It's a little bit of a nervy situation I'm in. So I'm thinking to myself, how did I end up here? What did I say? Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. But no, that that wasn't an option. You see, I'm the Apostle Paul. I, I can't not speak. I saw the risen Jesus, the king of the world, and he sent me and some other guys, ordinary guys. He sent us to be his witnesses to the world, witnesses of the resurrection. By the power of the Spirit, that's what we've been doing for the last while. We went to Jerusalem, told them about Jesus, and then to Judea, and then Samaria. And and me and my buddies have been traveling around the world now, Turkey, Macedonia, into Greece. It's a bit of a crisis there, but... It's all right. And every place we go, we tell them about Jesus. We witness to the resurrection. And and some people believe us and others. Well, we've had a bit of trouble, you could say. We were just in Berea recently, and it got so hot that the believers said, Paul, you better leave. And so they shipped me off to Athens, and, and here I am. And I was walking around the city, and I couldn't believe my eyes. The place is just packed with idols. People kind of imagine what they think God might be like and then make a statue of that and worship it. Oh man, I I find that hard as a Jew. I'm kind of like schooled in Isaiah. I find idolatry hard. My spirit was troubled. I was moved. You ever felt like that? Just by the lies, you moved. How could they represent the glorious God like one of these little statues? It's sad. People kind of serving and worshipping these lies, enslaving them. Especially when Jesus has come, you know, the glorious God represented himself in Jesus, the picture of the true God, and he's wonderful, and he frees us from idolatry, and and there they are, worshipping idols. So you see, I had to speak. I went into the synagogue and I talked with the Jews. I went into the marketplace and I talked with whoever was there all the time. And that's when the philosophers turned up. And I guess that's why I'm here. The standing before this council, the Areopagus. But I've got to say, it's a bit of a nervy situation. What am I going to say? How are they going to respond? Let's just drop the first person thing now. Um, That's the question, though, for today. What did he say? What did Paul say to this Areopagus? How did they respond? First, what did he say? And let me summarize it like this. 
Paul says, Jesus is risen. That's his big message. Jesus is risen. He's coming to judge. Application, repent. Turn from your wrong views about God and seek the truth. If Paul's feeling nervy, he doesn't really show it, does he? Would you look at me in verse 22, where, where he kicks off? Verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. It's good to start with a compliment. It's good. It does, that, that's the end of the compliment. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God, literally an agnostic God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Philosophers love to be called ignorant. They love that. But the thing is, it's self-professed, isn't it? They've, they've set up this altar saying, we don't know. We don't know God. Agnostic. I've got to say, friends, that's, that's kind of Sydney, right? You meet people like this, agnostic. I had a good chat with an agnostic woman just the other day. This is Sydney. We're not very religious, but we are very confused about God. A whole bunch of views. Athens was the same as a whole bunch of views about God. Here we've got represented the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they're kind of almost opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, see if you kind of uh, can recognize your friends in these, in these views. The Stoics, they're kind of like New Ages, but a little bit scientific. God's in everything. God's everywhere. Each of us have a divine spark within us, and the purpose of life is to align ourselves with that godness within. Do you know people like that? Maybe. Epicureans are the other end of the scale. Gods are not everywhere. The gods are off at a distance. They're not interested in us. They're kind of doing their thing. So what do we do? Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Do you know people like that? like the North Shore. <laughs> Friends, this is who Paul is talking to as he stands there before this council, this whole spectrum of confusion about God. This He's standing before Sydney in some ways. And what does he say? He says, you guys are ignorant, <laughs> but let me lay it out straight. You guys are trying to define God from your own imagination, but these guesses you come up with are much too small, much too kind of, Created-like. So, for example, verse 25, you guys think God needs your service, your sacrifices and things. You've been to a Thai restaurant and seen the kind of the offering to the gods, food for the gods, little fruit and a bit of flowers. God says, uh, sorry, Paul says, God doesn't need us. We get everything from him. Life and breath and everything. Friends, we... Make idols. The idols we make, things like money, sports, success, family, they need things from us. We must serve them. The true God is so much better. He doesn't need you at all. He doesn't need us. He's free and independent. He is always giver. Paul goes on, verse 24. You guys reckon God lives in shrines made by hands? You can kind of imagine him, can we get that picture again, Robin? You can imagine him kind of pointing his hand back to the Parthenon, the temple of Athena. You guys think God lives in, in buildings that are like bound by four walls? Not at all. Verse 26, God decides where you live, not you, him. He, he, he establishes the boundaries of your life. 
You, you Athenians, you imagine what God is like. You, you Sydney siders, you imagine what God is like, but your vision is too small. It's too much like created things. Now, now so far, uh, the Epicureans could be standing there going, that's right, Stoics. That's how it is. God, he's offered a distance. But Paul goes, oh, hang on. That's not quite right. You see, God appoints the boundaries for your life, but why does he do that? What, what's he trying to achieve? What's he setting you up for? Well, verse 27 kind of goes back a bit in the stoic direction in a sense. He did this so they, people, might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said. For we also are his offspring. This God, he actually wants to engage with us. You know that, Paul says. And so Paul summarizes so far in verse 29. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Friends, you might think this is 100 miles away from us in Sydney. We don't have idols, do we? I think it's very near. We love to invent gods of our own imagination. We love to have kind of this picture of God in our heads, even if we don't make a statue of it, which is just kind of suits us, just works for us. A God who approves of our behavior. A God who has the same values as us. God's kind of liberal in his values, surely, because I am. God approves of the way I spend my money. Surely that's what God's like. We, we make a God who is like us. I've often met people who will say things like, I like to think of God, I think, I think he's a good bloke. And you know the person who says that? They think they're, they're a good bloke. They're like, people will say, I like to think of God as kind of a nature spirit. Guaranteed, greeny, you know? Honestly, naturally, I think of God as someone who is not interested in aesthetic things. Because I'm not. Although I believe he is. <laughs> See, we imagine a God that suits us. Friends, these are parodies. They're false. They're much too small, too much like created things. As I've been working through this passage, I've been realizing I've got some ideas about God in my head that are not right, and I know it. Well, all this so far brings Paul to his point. Because you see, he's been asked about Jesus and the resurrection. Everything he said so far is just to show the significance of Jesus and the resurrection. So having set it up, he drops the bomb in verse 30 and 31. Would you look at that with me? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You might have been ignorant in the past, he says, but those days are over. Why? The resurrection's happened. Changes everything. It's one event in history. The resurrection is the great reason why all people everywhere must repent now, says Paul. Resurrection is kind of the foundation plank in his whole argument. He says, because, because in the resurrection of Jesus, uh, 
God's judgment has already begun. His judgment is guaranteed because in the resurrection, it's already begun. Let me, let me try to tease that out a little bit. See, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He, he is like a walking, talking, breathing picture of God. When you look at him, you see God. And so when this walking, talking picture of God came to earth, what did people do? Killed him. Human judgment. We killed him. We saw that picture. We stuck it on a cross. A while ago, I had a, um, a homeless Maori artist living with me. That's a bundle of contradictions. Anyway, he, uh, that's not really, is it? And his name was Mervyn. But he made a picture of me. I didn't ask him to, but he made a picture of me. It's kind of inspired by Daniel's, Daniel in the lion's den. Very small, I know. You can look at it later. Um, I won't put it up for sale. It's not very good. But um, can you imagine someone finding this picture of me and saying, I don't like the look of this guy. Uh, I don't like him. And then smash, scribble all over it. That's their judgment upon me. This is what happened to God. His picture, his son Jesus, didn't like it. We reject that picture of God, that view of God we reject. We stuck him on a cross. That's our judgment. But God's judgment has also begun because God raised him up to life again. God said, no, no, that is the picture of me. He is good. He is true. He is right. And he raised him up to life. It's as if I found those shards of the broken picture and I put them together again, made them all right again and said, no, that is exactly how I want to be represented. With my hands on lions, kind of looking buff. That's, no, not quite. But this is the resurrection. We judged God in putting his son Jesus on the cross. God judged Jesus and us in a sense in raising him to new life. And he is now the judge. When he returns, he will carry on this work of judgment. At the return of Jesus, all our wrong ideas about God will be shown for what they are. All our wrong ideas, pictures of God will be kind of held up against the one glorious, true, approved picture of God that is the glorious Lord Jesus. And they will be seen, our pictures will be seen for what they are. Terrible counterfeits next to the glorious goodness of our God. When he returns, he will judge the world. It doesn't mean he's going to kind of walk around smashing everything like some kind of moody teenage boy. Some of us have been there. His judgment will be right and true and good. Friends, the time to repent is now. Turn from false pictures of God. You've got them in your head. Turn away from them to the truth. The time is now. Why? Because he has set a day. Verse 31, he's set a day when he's going to judge. It's on his calendar. He's kind of crossing off the days as we go. The clock is ticking. So friends, can I urge you to act on this now? You're a Christian, but you know your coddling views about God that are not true. They just kind of suit you. Now's the time to toss them out. If you're not yet a believer, you know you're a bit ignorant about God. What are we going to do? Turn to the truth. Turn to God's approved picture of himself that is Jesus. It's a wonderful picture of God, a beautiful picture of God. Like Paul said, friends, God has appointed the boundaries of your life, your days, your times, your location, so that you might seek God 
reach out for him and maybe find him. He's not far from each one of us. Not far at all. So what ended up happening that day? What what ended up up happening that day at the Areopagus? How did they respond? Did they seek God? Well, let's just spend one or two minutes uh, on this, their response. Would you look at verse 32 with me? We'll see there's the usual kind of response. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Times haven't really changed. Um, I think speaking about the resurrection still seems a bit far-fetched. You're standing there once again before the CEO, the intellectual colleague, the manager, whoever it is. They put you on the spot about Christianity. Do you bring up the resurrection? Some of you might. I've got to say I'm a bit slow to bring that up. I feel like I might get ridiculed. They called Paul a a pseudo-intellectual. I think they'd call me an anti-intellectual. But that's exactly where Paul goes, isn't it? Straight to resurrection. Why? Were they more gullible back then, less scientific? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, very unscientific? No, that's not it. Was it that they just really, they believed in myths? That's why they were into this kind of thing, resurrection. That works for them because they're into myths. Let, Let me tell you about one of the myths. The myth about the establishment, the inauguration of the Areopagus. Apparently, Apollo established the Areopagus, and this is one of the things he said at the inauguration. When a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. This is the the fact that the Areopagus is built on. And Paul stands before them and says, I've got one thing to say, there is. How come we're so slow to talk about the resurrection when it's the one plank Paul builds his whole argument on? Paul sees that if Jesus has been raised, then all of our philosophies and intelligence and ideas just get relegated to second place. And first place is this one reality, this truth, this event in history. Jesus has risen. He's alive. We're going to deal with that. See, I went on this long ramble about kind of pictures of God. Paul just says, guys, Jesus has risen. Fact. What are we going to do with that? The resurrection requires us to sit up and pay attention, causes us to kind of question our presuppositions and beliefs about God. At the very least, doesn't it say Jesus isn't nobody? At the very least, it says that, doesn't it? Paul would say, actually, it says Jesus is Lord, the firstborn of a new humanity. He's the king, the judge. Now, I think that's actually maybe part of why we don't like talking about it first up. It's not just that it's kind of all a bit magical and weird. It's because it's confronting. It confronts our independence and our our, our self-rule that I want to be the boss. That's why we're slow to bring it up. We prefer to talk about Jesus' death because it sounds more like an offer than a demand. Friends, as we stand in a world full of ideas and intelligence, you may be tempted to feel like a fool 
because of the resurrection. You may feel threatened by all the intelligent, smart people out there who wear their white coats and tell you it's rubbish. Can I urge you, stand on the resurrection, speak of the resurrection. It's the event that demands all intelligence and ideas into second place. It demands them take second place, backseat. It demands that our false ideas of God be rethought. Have you got false ideas about God? It demands that we seek God in Jesus, reach out to him, for he is the king, the one who is coming to judge. He is the approved picture of God. He is a wonderful, beautiful picture of God. Will you seek him? I'm going to pray for us, and I think we're going to sing again. Father, I want to thank you so much for your grace that though we are confused about you and have wrong ideas, uh, you have given us your son and in him uh, we see who you are. Oh Lord, please help us to respond appropriately to the truth of the resurrection that you are coming to judge. Father, please help us um, to realize we need to get straight about you. We need to understand you. We need to know you. Father, I pray, pray please for those here who are still in a lot of ignorance about you. Please draw them to truth. Help them to turn away from false views of you and seek the truth in your son, Jesus. Pray for each of us, Lord, that you'd align our thoughts about you more and more with the truth, that we might honor you and live for you always. Amen.